And before we start, I want to give you a, a brief update on uh, Jordan Seto. Now, for those of you who don't know, Jordan Seto is the son of our um, executive pastor, Mako Seto, and his wife, Amy. But he was diagnosed with um, leukemia, and so he start, he's been in the hospital for about maybe a week and a, a half right now. However, um, he started chemotherapy, you know, last week, and uh, we've had people that went and visited him, not inside, but they went to the hospital uh, to pray for him this past weekend, and they reported that um, Jordan is doing well, as well as could be expected. He does have a fever, and um, so they're keeping him at the hospital. But the good news is if he's fever-free for three days, he'll be released and be able to go home to finish up his uh, chemotherapy at home. And so uh, continue to pray for Jordan and um, the Seto family as they go through this uh, difficult time. You know, last week, you know, I talked about comfort. And when we go through difficult times, you know, God does provide us comfort, his comfort that the world cannot give us. However, you know, when God does comfort us, it's not just for our own sake. God wants us to comfort other people who are going through whatever problems they're going through with the same comfort that, you know, he has given us. And today, um, we're going to talk about, you know, where is God when we're hurting? And this answers the question, you know, God, why do you seem silent uh, when I uh, need you the most? And, you know, a lot of times, or most of the times when we go through struggles, when we go through difficulties, we don't understand. You know, God is silent. And, but he leaves us something, or we have a powerful weapon at our disposal. And that's called hope. And so what does the Bible say about hope? Well, in Romans 8.24, the Apostle Paul says, But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, you know, if we already have something... You know, we don't need to hope for it because we already have it. If we are going through a difficult times and we understand God's game plan, we know exactly why God's doing what he's doing, you know, we don't need hope, right? We don't need hope because we already have it. But what he says is we hope for what we don't have yet. We place our hope in situations where we don't have the answers. We place our hope in situations where we don't see the outcome. And even if we can't see a possible good outcome of whatever circumstances we have, this is when we have hope. And Paul says we wait for it patiently. Now, we are not, it's not wishful thinking. When we say, um, I hope this happens, it's not like we cross our fingers and we're just wishing that it happens. We are placing our hope in a holy God, a righteous God, an all-powerful and all-knowing God. And that gives us so much comfort as we go through things we don't understand. And when we are hurting, it seems like God is not there and he's silent. And today we're going to take a look at a man who is going through exactly that, a man who probably went through more um, hardship than any of us will go through in our lives. And his name was Job. So if you have your Bibles, can you turn with me to Job um, chapter 1? And we're going to start with verse 1. Job chapter 1, verse 1. 
It says, In the land of Uz there was a man whose name was Job, and this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. So once again, we start off with the characteristic of Job, that he was blameless, that he was a righteous man. And we believe that Job is the oldest book in the Bible. And um, we probably... We, um, theologians or scholars believe that Job probably lived during the time of Abraham. So Abraham and Job were probably contemporaries of one another. But he also goes to the writer who we think could possibly have been Moses said this in verse 2. He had seven sons and three daughters. He also owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Not only was Job a self-righteous man and a godly man, he was the greatest man in terms of wealth among all of the people in the area. He was basically the Jeff Bezos of his era. In verse 4, it says... His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements to have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, well, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. And so we see here that when each one of the kids had their birthdays, his children had birthdays, they would invite their entire families to come over and celebrate them. Now, obviously, this celebration went for, you know, a period of time. Um, But after the celebration was over, Job always sent for them, sent for his children, And in the morning, he would offer a burnt offering. Because he said, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their heart. Now, when he says curse God in their hearts, basically, you know, when they were drinking, they might have said some things that were disrespectful of God. Or as one commentator said, through all of their reveling and and just enjoying, you know, the uh, things of the blessings that God has given them, they forgot that God was the source of their blessing, right? And so Job was highly involved in the spiritual well-being of his Children, because like I said earlier, after the feast was over, Job sent for them to consecrate, uh, consecrate them. He believed that the righteousness of his children was more important than the wealth they had. And, you know, I know I've said this before, and parents, I'm going to keep saying this. I know until you're sick of hearing this from me. But your primary purpose in life in regards to your children is to what? Look over and care for their spiritual development, not their academics uh, development, not their athletic development, not their career development, but their spiritual development. That is the most important 
responsibility you have, and that should be your number one responsibility as a parent. And we see that in Job, where Job was the wealthiest man of his time. But every time they had a celebration, he would offer up a sacrifice showing his children, number one, everything that you have, everything that we have accumulated comes from God, and that it is important for us to live a righteous life. And that's what he was teaching his children. Job made his children's uh, spiritual health a priority, even over the wealth they had and their future. He was an example of what it meant to live a righteous life. Could you imagine, you could imagine if a a wealthy man had all of these things, and if he didn't care about these things, what would his children value? I guarantee you they would value all of the wealthy things that they had, and that, you know, in life, they would try to acquire more land, more animals, um, so they could be wealthy. However, Job, that was not Job's priority. Job's priority, as wealthy as he was, was to raise his kids up spiritually to let them know that that was the most that was the most important thing in your life not wealth but your righteousness your righteous living before a holy god and parents you've got to be that example you can't just tell them about it you have to lead by example, just like Job did when it came to this. And then we see in verse 6, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Well, does he fear, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Well, have you put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work on his, of his hands so that he has, so, so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Very well then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now this is interesting. We see here the conversations between God and Satan, where um, God says, have you seen Job? You know, he's a righteous man. He lives upright. And Satan goes, well, do you think he's doing that for a reason? He's only living this way because you have made him wealthy. If you take away all of his wealth, surely, surely he will curse you and you will see that he is not living righteously for you, but he's only living righteously because of the things that you give him. So God says, okay. If that's what you think, take away, you have my permission to take away everything he has. But on Job, 
You can't lay a finger. Now, this is an important principle because a lot of times when we're looking at bad things happen and we're thinking, man, does Satan, is Satan just have free reign on our lives and could do whatever he wants to do to make our lives miserable? Because doesn't it feel like that sometimes when we just get hit wave after wave after wave after wave of bad news? And we feel that Satan is out there unrestrained, messing up our lives. However, God is a sovereign God. God is 100% in control. And even here, Satan cannot do whatever he wants. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. And God told Satan, you could take away his wealth, but you can't touch him him personally. Then he uh, continues... In verse 13, And one day Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the Rolo's brother's house. You know, probably, you know, in some sort of celebration. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put your servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire from God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you this. While he was still speaking, another servant came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put your servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. In one moment, the wealthiest man in the world lost all of his wealth. And if that wasn't bad enough, It gets worse. In verse 18, While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. And suddenly a mighty wind swept from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Not only in one fell swoop did Job lose his entire wealth, but then that next messenger came and gave him the, Job the news that no parent ever wants to hear. And what was that? That all of his, the lives of his children were taken and that they were killed. Could you imagine going through that? It's hard enough losing everything you have. And I think most of us would say, well, those are just material things. That what's really important to us are our family. Job lost his wealth and he lost his family. His grief must have been overwhelming and overpowered him. Verse 20. After this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, then fell on the ground to worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's room, and naked I will (coughs) depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Here he 
Job experiencing and, and hears the news that his life is just ruined. Every aspect of his life is ruined. So he tears his robe. He shaves his head in utter, utter grief. Utter, utter grief. Unimaginable pain that he was going through. But what did he do? He worshiped God. And then he said, the Lord gave and the Lord take it away. May the name of the Lord be blessed. Now let me ask you a question. If this happened to you, I mean, if just a portion of your wealth was taken away, would this be your response? If God allowed everything, everything to be taken away from you, would this be your response? You know, as I go through this and I thought about this, my guess is this wouldn't have been my response. I don't think I would have cursed God, but the first thing I probably wouldn't do is worship him. But this is what Job did. He worshiped God because he believed in a sovereign God whose blessings, everything he has, came from God. Everything he has was owned by God, including his children. And Job saw all of his possessions, all of his uh, children, as a blessing that God has given him, but ultimately God owns everything. And, And when you believe in a sovereign God, and if you believe that God is a good God, and God is a holy and righteous God, and that he owns everything, that he owns everything, including your children, or whatever you hold precious and dear to you, that God owns it. It changes your perspective when you lose it. As hard as it is to lose your children, we have to realize that my son Michael is not my child. My son Michael is God's child. You know, as much as Pastor Marco and Amy love Jordan, Jordan is not their child. Jordan is God's child. And it's in these times where when we think of our possessions or the things that we hold dear to our lives, that, that God owns it and that we are here to steward this and we lose it, we can say, you know what, God, I don't get it. But... You know, these are your things. You're a good God. You know, you love Jordan. You love Michael. And you could do whatever you want with it because they are yours. And I trust that you're a good God. Verse 22. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Amazing. Amazing. In chapter 2, Satan accuses Job of worshiping God because he blessed Job with good health. So God gave Satan the permission to give Job boils, to take away his health, but he couldn't take away his life. Have you ever felt like this? (laughs) Where you're saying, what in the world did I ever do to deserve this? And in Job's case, he did 
absolutely nothing. The Bible says that he was a righteous man and he obeyed God. You know, to make matters worse, it seems like God's fairness is in question because Job, who was a righteous man, was inflicted with incredible suffering because he was a subject between, of a bet between God and Satan. God says, look at my servant Job. He is a righteous man, an upright man. And Satan says, no, he's not. He only worships you and lives righteously because of all the things that you give him. I'll bet you, if you take everything away from him, that he will curse you, right? Job did nothing wrong. He was part, he was just the subject of a bet. And this gives us, brings me to my first point. Our hope in God begins with the right perspective. God does not exist for us. We exist for him, right? Because if we believe that God exists for us and we look at this situation, we think this is incredibly unfair and that God has no clue what he's doing and that we could possibly come to the conclusion that maybe God is an evil God. Right? God is a cruel God because he punishes those who are righteous for no reason whatsoever. But it changes your perspective if you believe that God does not exist for us. We exist for him. God was showing us the nature of his sovereignty. And from God's perspective, Job's comfort as harsh as it may sound, was really insignificant in comparison to the cosmic issues that were at stake. The real battle ended when Job refused to give up on God, thus causing Satan to be defeated. It gives us an example that we can be expected to endure anything that Job did and still trust God. So you may think, is it possible, is it possible for you and I to go through unimaginable pain and suffering and still worship and trust God? And the answer is yes. Why? Because we see this example here. And I believe this is one of the reasons why God allowed this to happen to Job to show the rest of us that your life is going to be uh, characterized with suffering. Suffering is going to happen in your life. But when it happens, it is possible for you to still trust me and for for you to still worship me because despite his losses and suffering, Job still remained faithful to God. But that wasn't the perspective of his wife. His wife had a perspective that God exists for her. And even though this isn't up there, um, in Job 2, 9 through 10, if you could write this down or you could look at it in your Bibles, then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women, as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. 
Once again, Job places his trust in a holy, sovereign, and good God. Even though his trials, even though during his trials, he wondered where God was um, through all of this. You know, the Bible says that Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us, but there are times when he is silent during the times when we need him the most. And we see this in Job's reflection of this incident, where we see in Job 23, um, verse 8. Job 23, verse 8. And this is what Job has said. But if I go to the east, he, meaning God, is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he has work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. And basically what Job is saying here is, you know, during my suffering, I'm looking for God everywhere, but I can't find him. I know God is there. God is working, but he is not revealing himself to me. He is not responding to my prayers. Where is he? But Job says, God knows the way that he is taking That even though he is silent, and even though Job cannot find God no matter where he goes, he's saying that God knows where Job's at. God knows exactly where Job is at. God has not forgotten about Job. But this is what he says. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Because he knows that in suffering, we are our character is refined. And this is how God strengthens and molds our character. And our next point is our hope in God is strengthened in the furnace. Our hope in God is strengthened in the furnace. Ray Steadman, in his book, Let God Be God, says this, Our sufferings often seem meaningless, yet there is a lesson for all of us in Job's life and the lives of all those who endure persecution, martyrdom, injury, cancer, multiple sclerosis, poverty, and countless other types of trials. The lesson is that testing us, testing purifies us and reveals the gold of proven, refined character within us. God was using this to refine Job's character. A character of a man who was righteous and walked uprightly, which shows us that God is constantly working us. No matter how far you feel you've got in your spiritual walk, my guess is that you and I are not at Job's level. God is still refining our character. So we will always go through testing and trials. In silence, God is asking us to continue to trust him. That trust is strengthened in God's silence, not answers. Once again, if you're going through a tough time, trust in God is strengthened in God's silence and not getting the answers. You know, knowing the wise would not bring Job's children back to him. And the pain of loss that Job experienced was real. But Job finally gets an audience with God to ask why it happens. 
And instead of giving him answers, God confronts Job. And we see this in verse chapters 38 to 42. And listen to this. It's not up there, but this is what God, this is the response God gives Job. Who is it that questions my wisdom with such ignorance words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid down the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. And it proceeds with um, God asking Job all of these questions that only God himself could answer. And Job, God asking God if he could do these things that only God can do. And finally, after all of this, this is Job's reply in, verse, in chapter 42, verse 1. I know that you could do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this who obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. I love that confession of Job because when we go through trials and we try to question God and pass judgment on God for allowing things to happen in our lives, we realize that we are speaking about things we do not understand, things too wonderful for us to know. Did you notice he said things too Wonderful for us to know. He lost everything. He lost everything. But what his final conclusion was that he didn't understand the mind of God and that God, when he does things, even though we can't understand it, they are too wonderful, wonderful for us to know. He didn't say that these things are too horrific for us to handle. These things are too wonderful. Verse 4, you said, listen now, I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in the dust of the ashes. And I think if we, you know, in all of this, God never told Job why he allowed this to happen to him. But Job came to this conclusion. And if this was us, and we were faced and come face to face with the Almighty God, I know this would be our response too. Verse 12 and verse 42. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. In In a sense, God doubled Job's livestock. He doubled his wealth. He also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapach. Nowhere in the land, nowhere in the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. And Job lived 140 years and saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, a man full and full of years. So what's the lesson here? 
is that when you successfully go through trials that God uses to refine you, that he will make you even more successful? No. The promise of Job 42 is that God will finally right the wrong so that we experience during our lifetimes. You know, why was Job so happy? In his book, Disappointment with God, Philip Yancey said, no amount of new prosperity could make up for the suffering Job had undergone. What of the ten children who died? No parent could believe for a moment that a bustling new brood of children would erase the sorrow of the ones Job lost. But in Job 19, 25-26, Job says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and that at last he will take his stand on earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God. Job understood that his new family could never replace the old one that he lost. But Job's hope came from the fact that he believed that his children and he would be united one day in heaven for all eternity. His new children could not replace the ones that he loved so dearly. But Job had confidence and hope that they would be reunited one day in heaven. And it brings me to my last point. Our hope in God is based on the promise of heaven. Our hope in God is is based on the promise of heaven. In Revelation 21.1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down of, um, from, of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. You know, when we go through sufferings and trials, we ask for miracles. Because we think that they will increase our faith in God. And yes, God does and is capable of performing miracles to display his power. But when we ask, but we, excuse me, we can ask, but our loyalty to God cannot, and I repeat, cannot be contingent on whether he reveals ourselves, himself, as he goes through difficulty. Because if we insist, if we keep insisting on visible proof from God, we are setting ourselves up for a life of disappointment. Because God is not a genie at our beck and call, okay? God is not obligated to answer our questions or to even reveal himself when we go through difficult things. And the majority of the time, he doesn't. Why? Because I said, our trust in him grows in silence and not in answers. Second, if we insist on visible proof from God, ultimately we are going to be disappointed because miracles are only temporary, Miracles just delay the inevitable. Every person in the Bible who was miraculously healed, they eventually died. Every person in the Bible 
who was miraculously raised from the dead with the exception of Jesus. Now, with the exception of Jesus, all those who were resurrected from the dead, they all died. Physical death is inevitable for all of us today. But our faith in God gives us the hope that one day all the wrongs in our lives will be righted and we will live in heaven for all eternity. As the physical results of miracles are only temporary, our sufferings, as horrible as they may be, are also temporary. And I want to leave you with that thought. As, physical, as the physical results of miracles are only temporary, our sufferings, as horrible as they may be, are also temporary. What's our weekly challenge? You can see that right up here. Our weekly challenge is this. I'd like you to, this week, I'd like you to read Job's chapter 1 and 2, and then Job's chapter 38 to 42 this week. If you're going through a painful time in your life right now, how can you have hope in a sovereign God who gives you comfort? Some of you might be going through pain right now, but how can you have hope? Think about this, in a sovereign God that could give you comfort. You know, Job was able to do it, and so can we. And finally, remember the promise of Job 42. It's that God will finally right the wrongs that we experience during our lifetime. The promise of Job 42 is not that he's going to make us wealthy, even more wealthy, after we come through our trials. The promise is that God will finally right the wrongs that we experience in our lifetime. And that's in heaven, and that's something that all of us who place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ could look forward. Let's pray in the worship team. Could you please come forward? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the example of Job, a man who was righteous, a man who walked upright, a man who went through unbelievable sorrow and pain, was still able to worship you because he believed that everything he had came from you. And that you are a holy, sovereign, and good God. And that you gave him things, but you could also give, take away things from him. Because he believed that you owned everything. And that even as precious as his children were to him, that they belonged to you. And that you love them dearly. And that whatever your plans for them, Father, it stemmed from you being a good God and sovereign God. I know some of you are going through difficult times right now where you're facing a future that could have possible harsh results where you don't know the outcome, where you know the favorable outcome, but you also know the negative outcome that could come. At this time, I would like you just to focus on the fact that 
God owns everything. He owns your career, your possessions, your children. And we are just stewards of that which he gives us. He even owns our life. We are just stewarding what he's given us. So take a few moments to declare that God owns everything. And you are just stewarding the possessions that he has. And that you are trusting in a God who is sovereign, a God who is in total control, and a good and loving God with all the dearest things that you have in your possession. So declare that to God right now. Father, we thank you so much that no matter what we go through, no matter how uncertain our future is, that we can place our trust and hope in you. And that hope doesn't happen when we have what we desire. Hope only happens for the things that we do not have. And for those things, Father, we wait patiently, trusting you that you have a reason and a plan, that even though we go through difficult times and we, when you are silent, Father, you promise that you would never leave us nor forsake us. And your silence does not mean that you have left us. Father, for those of us who are going through a trial right now, who are, who are suffering right now, and who are experiencing your silence, Father, may your silence increase our trust in you. May we understand that answers do not give us hope. Answers do not give us comfort. Only trust in you. The perfect God could comfort us. Thank you that you are our Lord God Almighty and that you have everything in control. Satan cannot do whatever he wants. His angels, his demons cannot do whatever they want and they are all held in check by you who uses their activity to refine our faith and refine our trust to become pure gold. Thank you. Thank you so much for the assurance of hope we have in you when we go through difficult times. In your son's name we pray, amen.